0: You're listening to Cinema Rex, it's an Iranian film podcast. Episode 8, Farrokh Kapariz, The Night of the Hunchback.
1: You should get two more dogs in name them, Cinema and Rex.
0: I'll just change this guy's legal name.
1: Is Cinema... A boy's name or a girl's name for a dog?
0: Girl, 100%. Why?
1: Because it ends in an A?
0: Uh, let's go with yes. That makes sense. one second. Just right now, this dog's wanting my attention, so I'm going to give it to him before we actually start. Okay. Here, go. Be cute. I've got a question for you. How do you feel if I start doing this? It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Ugh everywhere we look and the prettiest sight you see is the holly that you bring Ugh. well it's christmas time it's yalda it's yalda time yeah. it's christmas time listen
1: Corbett, i don't hanukkah just I have ended. a post-colonial mindset
0: i mean there's <laughs> you don't need to have to have a pre-colonial mindset just to, to put some decorations on a tree i don't know so you i guess you cringe at the thought of christmas right
1: christmas is capitalist tomfoolery
0: aren't you a big proponent of valentine's day though (laughs) no uh
1: black friday though that's that's my jam yeah
0: you celebrate i celebrate black friday
1: see black friday for me is like i as much as i hate capitalism i also can't refuse an opportunity to save So, that's where my uh, my frugality comes to head with my uh, ethical dilemmas.
0: Well, then you should be a huge because you like okay you you like to save. Uh You know who saves? Jesus saves. Jesus wasn't born in December. (laughs) Yeah, but he saves. Jesus saves, and Christmas is about making sure you spread the word of Christ. Okay, and where where does this tree factor in? Um, I think he was. Jesus decorated the first tree after Moses had brought him presents and he didn't know where to hide them. So Jesus and Santa went tree hunting I, with machetes.
1: I, I feel like all the all of our older crowd who typically listens to this podcast and they're like, well, wow, I really like Kava. He's so insightful. They're all listening right now. They're like, what an idiot.
0: <laughs> this guy knows nothing about Christ, our Lord and Savior.
1: Or history Amen. or... Dustan Aziz, welcome to the Cinema Rex podcast. Uh you forgot the first part. What's the first part? Durut uh, Aziz. Okay, okay. Do you want to do it? We'll just go through. You wanna go over it? You wanna do it once now? I'll do it, yeah, yeah. Dustan Aziz, welcome to the Cinema Rex podcast.
0: I'm Kavi Mohebi.
1: And I'm Farhan Moradi.
0: Well, also, no, but there's the other thing I do where I go. Uh, welcome to the Cinema Rex podcast, where we talk all things Iranian.
1: That's what I thought stuff. when I went like this. I was cueing you to say that.
0: <laughs> was I was that. Okay, let's try it. one more that. time.
1: One more time. You say that part, and then you say the "I'm Kava Muhabi," and then I'll jump with "I'm foreign Marty. Okay, ready? Okay. Do Rude Roma, to Sun Aziz. Welcome to the
0: Cinema Rex podcast. It's beginning to look a lot like <laughs> Christmas. Oh, sorry. Was that not what you wanted?
1: Oh my god. Okay, gosh. Uh, where
0: we all where we talk all things around you film and cinema. I'm Kaveh Mohebi and
1: I'm Farhan Moradi.
0: We're here today to talk about a very I have a little bit of a concern about talking about this film because I've noticed the numbers of viewership or listeners and depending on our biggest um numbers come from how popular the film is. And this is a film that I think would probably probably be the arguably the least popular film we've done so far.
1: Oh, for sure. Like even Even some of the cinephiles that we've had as guests on the show that I'm like, oh, these people are like walking encyclopedia on Iranian cinema. Hadn't heard of this film.
0: Yeah. So to the four of you who are going to be listening to this, (laughs) welcome to the show. We're really happy you tuned in. Um, The film is, of course, called... You say it in English. I'll say it in Farsi. Okay. Night of the Hunchback. Shabak Wuzi, which is a very funny comedy from the 1960s directed by Farrokh
1: Ghafari. I read it in Farsi this time cuz I got I got people sliding into my DMs like crazy after the separation episode telling me that I got uh Maldi's name wrong. They're like it's not Moayedi, it's Maladi. But I don't know cuz like a few people have told me it's Maladi, but then at the Mehmoni that we had with like all those Iranian filmmakers an argument broke out where, like, some people were like it's maladi, and then some people said it was uh, maedi. But I, I read it in Farsi, and in my very rudimentary literacy of of Farsi script, I read it now as maladi. But I could be wrong.
0: This self conscious nervous breakdown that you're currently experiencing is the reason I leave all of the Iranian pronunciations pronunciations to s- other people. Either you or Sadap or Mertaj, take over for me.
1: Yeah, that's fair. So this director, what's his name? How do you say his name? Kave, Go. Farokh Afari. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Af Afari. Yeah. Nailed it.
1: 1965
0: film, Night of the Hunchback, Shabu Guzi I pronounced that one okay, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you uh, didn't get that GH properly.
0: Um, yeah. You, you got to give back your Iranian credentials. Yeah. Because then you're saying Shabu guzi which is... Night yep. of the Farter. <laughs> yeah. I first heard about this film from Arash Ostiani, who we've had on our uh, show. We interviewed him, rather. We haven't really had him as a uh, co-host yet. He uh, was the actor. He's the director, writer, producer, and he was the actor in Holy Spider. Mm. I once asked him for a list of films that he highly recommends that aren't your classic staple, you know, People talk about Iranian films. They talk about Kiarostami. They talk about Farhadi. They might talk about Mahmandbaf. But I was like, who are some of the like uh, lesser known kind of like classic Iranian films? And this one was like really high on his list. So he was like, check it out, Night of the Hunter. And he didn't give me any other context. Yeah, Night of the Hunchback with like, yeah, sorry, Night of the Hunchback. Night of the Hunter is another fantastic film that is not an Iranian film. But so, can you tell me a little bit about? Well, tell me and the audience that your experience, because you were in New York, and at the MoMA, they were doing sort of a week-long interest retrospective of Iranian cinema, right?
1: Yeah, it was actually more than just a week. It, it was going on for a while. Um, it was a few months. It was it was really interesting, because like every day, almost every day, they had one or two films playing. Sometimes they'd be paired with short films or short documentaries. And most nights they had... I think like, not most nights, but maybe like once or twice a week, they had people come in and also do Q&As. And the film prints that they had, or I guess like digital scans, were all incredibly well scanned. Mm -hmm. Like they were very good quality. I know that in, there was talks to try to bring some of those screenings to LA. I reached out to TIFF to try to bring some of these screenings and tiff politely declined which i was a little shocked about so it, nice for them to do it politely yeah the, the five listeners of the podcast feel free to hit up the some tiff folks in their emails and, and request this but um we will likely be reaching out to um the moma programmers to try to bring some of these screenings to toronto soon Mm-hmm. Um, and potentially try to start doing uh, monthly Iranian film screenings or bi-monthly film screenings uh, in 2025 in Toronto.
0: So be on the lookout. Not next year. Sorry, 2024. Oh, because I was thinking, I was like, why give us a 12 month gap? Yeah, no, no, no. imagine. Is, I, surely this can't be that hard of a project. No, to no, no, no.
1: Yeah, hopefully, uh, I think we're th- we're looking at potentially February for the first one. Mm -hmm. um and then monthly after that but i I, i'm gonna try to reach out and connect with the programmers at moma and and see if we can get access to the same source files that they use because they're incredible quality like the version that that you have kava that you gave me of the film to like go back over and kind of refresh my memory on was not nearly as good as the quality that they had like it was a very
0: good quality scan oh that's yeah of course if they're screening it on a big thing
1: yeah. The turnout was great. Um I like I wasn't expecting it. And after the film they played a documentary about the life of Farrokh Khafari, and uh yeah, when we get into I guess behind the scenes and stuff, we can talk about his life a little more. He's a really interesting guy and he's uh I I take a lot of inspiration from him now. With some of the things that we're trying to do with Iranian cinema and the diaspora.
0: I didn't know there was a documentary about him. I know there was a, a Vusuri documentary that I mm-hmm. might have played there. But there's just they produced it this year. Mm. Um, and I also, when I had coffee with my good friend, Bahman Farminar, he told me that he was a guest speaker at, at MoMA. When you were there too. So you guys had just missed each other. Mm. He was there. They did a, f- a few... They did a, a retrospective on some of his films and he came to speak. They flew him in from Iran.
1: Mm-hmm. And that was
0: actually the reason why he came to Toronto shortly after. Oh we had grabbed coffee with him. Did I not tell you that he was there the same time as you? You did, but I think we were trying to figure out what days he was there. Right, yeah. So Night of the Hunter, I'm really excited about this film. I really like Night it. of the I've Hunchback. Seen, oh my goodness, Night of the Hunchback. That is gonna happen so many more times. Night of the Hunchback, I've seen twice now. And I really have liked it both times. It is a comedy. It's like a broad, almost slaps the comedy, which I felt was like pretty um, interesting. Let me just dive right into a, a short version of the plot summary. And then maybe you and I can collectively discuss some of the major beats in the storyline, just so that those who have not seen the film could get a good sense of what happens. Essentially, the IMDb plot summary of Night of the Hunchback says, adapted from the famous collection of Middle Eastern folk tales. one thousand and one nights and set in a popular theater troupe the story follows the death of an actor in a farcical accident and the brilliantly elaborate gags and misunderstandings that abound in subsequent attempts to dispose of his body that's just a very brief synopsis but uh do you want to just collectively go over some of the major beats yeah 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 yeah. i'll start you just dive in wherever you feel i might have missed up something or you want to add something but essentially we start with a group of like these like it's like a, you know, a traveling theater group. They're like jugglers, dancers, comedians, musicians, kind of clowns. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, I sp- I think they're spending one night doing two shows. They're doing like a theatrical show, but then they have to hurry because they have like a private. They're kind of putting on a performance at this like woman, this man and woman, sort of like noble higher class. They're kind of like performing at the house party. Right. Mm-hmm. So they get there, they finish the show. And the woman tells the one actor who has a hunchback and is playing the role of a hunchback, she gives him a secret note saying, listen, this is the list of um, names and addresses. If the cops find this, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Please deliver this to someone they call the master, which you just kind of don't find out who it is right away. And they give the actors a bunch of food to go and like, you know, you know, the chef at this like nice house is like, take all this food with you. Enjoy like a nice picnic. They go out in the woods. They start eating. They make this picnic. They uh, they start like playing around and essentially horseplay, which is like they essentially start force feeding each other food mm-hmm. in a joking well, way. One
1: thing you missed. One thing you missed is that just as he finishes the show, he goes to like a physician or something who's there, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm having like really bad chest pains."
0: Yeah. After every performance, he complains that he's like, his he can't ca- can't catch his breath. Yeah, can't, yeah, and he's like, his heart feels weak. So you know the, the the woman and man who are with this hunchback actor who has the note in his pocket. They start jokingly force feeding him bread and food and covering his mouth, to which results in him essentially he can't breathe, his heart stops, and he dies right there in front of them. And there's a little bit of a farcical element because it's all handled with like a touch of comedy and levity. These two actors don't even think he's dead; they think he's joking around. Once they realize that he actually is. Probably dying. Their first instinct is, let's get him to a doctor ASAP. But it's the middle of the night. They don't know where to drag this body. As they enter the streets, they notice there's cops around. So they decide to leave the body in an alleyway and deal with him later. Enter the B plot, which is this hair salon sort of attendant. He's on a secret mission to also smuggle drugs, what we don't know, the drugs, contraband that's in a box. Essentially, from Iran to France, disguised as Gaz, which is like a Persian nougat. Right. Yeah. And he and he's his flight's leaving in two hours, and his boss is saying, "Are you ready to go?" Whatever. He's like, "Yes, I can't wait." He's ner- he's nervous, but he's excited about going to France.
1: Yeah, he's treating this like this trip to France as like a trip to France. Yeah. But the the guy who's I guess his like his boss or whatever who's like, "Oh, you have to take the contraband." He's like, you're not even staying there long. Like, you're just going yeah. there, you're handing this off, and you're coming back. Well, and
0: I got the feeling that there was a sense that he was never going to come back, too. There was some sense that I feel like this is his ticket out of here because he, of how much he was romanticizing this trip. Maybe. But he steps out. He, of course, finds the dead body of our hunchback, and he first instinct is to inform the cops of the dead body. But he realizes that if the cops show up, there's going to be questioning, interrogation. He's going to be left. He's going to miss this flight. So... He is in first instinct is to bring it into the hair salon and call his boss and say we have a problem. Like I, there's a dead body here. I can't just leave it, but I can't call the cops. What should we do? Yeah,
1: and I mean, like we don't need to get into every beat of where he goes, but but basically, what ends up happening over the course of the film is he gets past this dead body gets passed around from like like group to group to group. Like at one point, he ends up like the dead body ends up left uh by like left near a house party and then it gets left near um the the courtyard of some guy who's like trying to force his daughter to get married and then it gets like left in the street and some like some guy thinks he's asleep and drunk and robs the body like the body just keeps moving from place to place and eventually the the paper's that have a list of, you said smugglers, right? Yeah. On it, the identities of smugglers. Yeah. That ends up getting moved from person to person. So it's basically a game of hot potato with this carcass. Yeah. And then at the end of the film, you find out that he didn't die via foul play. He actually just had a heart attack.
0: Right. Which might have been brought on by the foul, foul play, but... Maybe. It was like
1: play. it was like pretty heavily implied when he has that, that scene with the physician that he's like he's probably already had a heart attack like that night. And that's he's, true. Like, right. Dying.
0: The main thing I was going to say about the two actors is they quickly kind of, they sort of fall into the backdrop of the rest of the film because they tell the woman who was the host that our, fr- our friend has died and she, they don't even know that she's given him the secret list. Mm-hmm. So the, for the rest of the film, the hostess takes it upon herself to track it down. Cause she's like, she tells her husband, the list is with him. He's dead. If we don't get that list back, our lives are ruined. So the four main events that are following is this hostess trying to find the body, the, uh, the hair salon and his boss who are trying to get out of the town, but they can't because they're they're now feeling responsible for finding the body, the father of this bride who's living in the neighborhood who thinks that the body is a, a, is a burglar, so he hits mm-hmm. him over the head mm-hmm. and thinks he's responsible for killing the guy, and the party that's going on upstairs. And I will get to this, but I really loved the use of the party because- there's not really any main characters. It almost seems just like a constant obstacle for everyone involved. But the music from the party is constantly playing throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Almost like the score of the film yeah. is the music playing from the party.
1: And and all that music is like copyrighted music from the US or like from, from Europe, yeah. which they can just use because Iran did not sign any copyright agreements with anybody. So there's like Ray Charles music playing throughout the
0: film. Well, so, and the, the crazy thing too about it is it has such a like sense of modern modernity and cool like it, it's like 60s swing or 50s swing and a lot of 60s rock. Yeah. And it's just kind of is is diegetic to the entire film, but every scene it just keeps like you suddenly realize the song these this this like soundtrack has been playing in the background of the entire film because they can hear it through the walls. Yeah. And it's just it's just it makes it really set itself apart from other Iranian films, I think, that I've seen so far to have this kind of score. Yeah. You know, undercurrent throughout the entire film. Let's start with our favorite thing ever, both of our favorites thing ever. It's Kava's opening scene corner. Okay. <laughs> the scene where we talk about what the opening the very I, first shot I like of the that film we is.
1: still don't have like a proper name for this, and every time it's
0: just like <laughs> a a word salad. <laughs> yeah, it's just a mouthful. Uh, do you remember what the opening shot of the film is?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's like a fake moon. It's like a fake crescent mm-hmm. moon that's been created as, like, a piece of set decoration for the play.
0: Right. Opening shot is the crescent moon, followed by the thing that I drew the most attention to is the- The doll? The f eff- the effigy, or I consider it, like, an effigy. Yeah, It's yeah, yeah. just, like, a demon with, like, flashing eyes and horns. It's supposed to be the hunchback, hang- but it's, like, hanging. And it almost looks like a hanging man. Mm-hmm like a like a hanged man mm-hmm. and then you realize that this is just kind of like a prop and display for the theater that we're about to see mm-hmm. is there any meaning that you could get extrapolate from the crescent moon and the effigy of a? I I mean to me it's like
1: corpse? it's like okay night like you see the moon of the hunchback like it's like right, right? there it's yeah. like shot yeah. to shot it's like the title of the film that's what i got yeah. from it but i don't know what about
0: you yeah, I just think like the imagery of the first thing you're seeing is is like it is night and then what looks like, yes, it's like a prop display, but I it's not quite hanging from its neck, but it just very much looked like an executed man mm-hmm. like hanging like mm-hmm. I don't know. it just was an interesting. there was nothing no deeper analysis there other than it was just interesting. So one of the things that I really like about this film, we talked about this a few seconds ago is that because of all the activity of the house party going on, the music, and all these kind of neighboring homes and businesses, Mm -hmm. I felt the movie feels very alive constantly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It always feels like there's something going on. You're hearing the music from the party upstairs. Mm -hmm. There's cops talking to people in the street corner. There's all these intersecting. It almost has this like not... um, Almost like a Pulp Fiction-y kind of thing where there's all these different converging story threads that overlap with another. And it doesn't really slow down. And I feel like this is a movie you can recommend to a lot of people because it once... The hunchback dies from the horse play, which is 10, 15 minutes into it. The story kind of has like a really cool, in my opinion, momentum and mm-hmm. a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. It's not well, like, once they get like,
1: the body into town because there's a little bit where they're yes. like trying to sneak him into town mm-hmm. and then it's like dark and they're like trying to make sure that a cop doesn't see them carrying the body because they're like, we don't want it to look like we killed this guy. And then they find that old man who gives them really obscure directions to so like where the doctor right, yeah. is. And then they yeah. can't make it to the doctor because now they get into town and there's a party going on. There's cops on this repo, and then it really picks up. Yeah.
0: yeah. And even though even that guy, and I don't want to spoil future sections we're talking about, but the guy who's talking about directions ends up just kind of focusing on telling a story about his daughter instead of talking about directions. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a waiter at the party because at one point they noticed that a lot of the people at the party are dancing on the rooftop. So they need to like carry the body over the rooftop to get across town. This is the uh, hair salon guy and his boss. Oh, that's Um,
1: okay. I was like, why do they keep trying to take the body to the
0: rooftop? Okay. That makes sense. I think they were just trying to drag it across town, but not go from the streets because the cops are on the street level. Okay, okay, I got you. And when they're, there, you know, they like the, all the people are dancing at the party and someone's like, hey, there's like a magician downstairs doing tricks. So they all run downstairs like, okay, now's our time to go. But as soon as they go, the waiter comes up to collect drinks and you notice the waiter's like dr- taking the sips from the rest of the drinks and slowly getting drunk. Yeah. Like that's such a fun character moment. It's very like Coen Brothers-y too, to have this like small role of a waiter collecting drinks, but he's like throughout the night, like just getting more and more drunk. It reminded me of uh, Peter Sellers is in a, a very problematic film called The Party. Have you seen it? No. Peter Sellers essentially is in brownface. He plays an Indian. He does the Indian accent. Um, and it's about like he's very chaplin esque clumsy kind of fool who doesn't belong in this party. Um, Peter Sellers played the Pink Panther. He was the detective in those Pink Panther movies. British actor. But there's this one backdrop story of like one of the waiters constantly just getting drunker and drunker through the night, and it's very funny. And this reminded me of that. There was also a line, and I don't know if you caught this. It's not even in the subtitles, but at one point, so I mean, the subtitles were French. The subtitles were French. I actually had an SRT file that had it in English. So oh, so interesting. Just
1: like that. Interesting. When um, I man watching it at, at MoMA was so annoying because it was like they were speaking in Persian. Right, yeah, and then there's the French subtitles baked into the image because I think the yeah. the original film print has the French subtitles built like yeah, burnt in, and then there were English subtitles underneath it. So oh, just man. like what, like getting subtitles, and and I speak all three languages. Yeah, yeah. So like all three of them were super distracting
0: to me. Well, and they're they all slightly different too.
1: Yeah, they're all slightly different, and you can and and the English translations, at least what I saw at MoMA. The English translations were translated from the French subtitles. Yeah, that's right. And the French subtitles took some liberties from the, yeah. the dialogue on the screen.
0: This house party at the one point, like, so the, the, the host of the original party that needs to track down this paper with the list of names, she shows up and she's trying to find what the body is. And she recognizes one of the women who's going to the party that's on the rooftop. So her friend's like, oh, are you coming to Faroch's party? Is the name of the party, which is the director's name, right? Mm-hmm. And then she's like, oh, I wasn't going to go. And it's like, who is that? He goes, oh, it's the same guy who was the yoga teacher in New York. Yeah. The line is specifically said, yeah, yeah, this yeah. was the yoga teacher. Yeah. When have, when have you ever in your life, in any Hollywood American movie, from the 60s, heard someone reference a yoga teacher? Think about this. This is the era of like Hitchcock. Um Kubrick, I'm like yoga was, I, I mean, it's always, it's been around for a very long time, but it, I, I feel like it became part of more like Western um, culture, sort of like adopted it more recently. And I mean, more recently in, within our lifetime. But like, you don't see in pop culture that much in films people talking about yoga teachers. Yeah. Do you? No. I was pretty shocked about that. Um, there's, yeah, it just felt incredibly modern, this movie, or ahead of its time. Yeah. I I felt like the director had a very strong fascination with Western culture, Eastern culture, and wanting to, like, pop music, yoga references. And, in fact, you know, I mean, I think it's worth mentioning, you know, um, he's in this film, the director.
1: Yeah, yeah. He uh, he plays the hairstylist.
0: Yeah, he's the hairstylist who first discovers the dead body and has to call his boss. He's the guy who's planning to go to France.
1: Yeah. So and he wants- and the director, the director is actually, he first studied in Belgium and then in France. So he's he's actually lived in France. So this whole thing of him going to France is like I think a nod to that a little bit. And that's also why, as he like slips in a little bit of like French idiosyncrasies and stuff when he's uh, yeah fantasizing about going to Paris. Mm-hmm. That's actually like things that he's picked up. And I also really like. There's a scene where. It, it transitions to like the airplane and you think you're hearing the, like you're seeing an airplane and like the sound of an engine, mm-hmm. but it's really just like a, a like shaving. cutout. Yeah. It's, it's a cutout of a, uh, of an airplane o- on like a shot of the sky that he has like on his like mirror or whatever. Cause he's, um, he's like ready. He's like getting in the mood to go to France and he's shaving with an electric trimmer
0: yeah that felt like a naked gun joke again yeah too. like that yeah. really thing and so i didn't know that thing about him like living in france and belgium but knowing that the director inserts himself in this film as a character who's obsessed about going to france or excited yeah. to go to france but he says like bad because he says i love um, that he said because i was about to quote him in Farsi, so i started switching he goes chamidun have a have a payment and he's like just like getting remember he starts repeating those two words over and over again like he's like leaning on the mannequin like whimsically being like any minute now i'm gonna grab my suitcase and go to go on the plane so he's excited oh and
1: and i also like when it when it when it cuts to him it like it makes it's kind of cut like a dialogue scene
0: between the mannequins yes we'll get to that well that we'll get to Yes, you can say whatever you want about that. I will see. I will get to that scene later. Okay, okay, we'll get to it. But it's yeah, because it's shot very much. Well, yes. Um, the one thing I kept writing as a note too was this is a hundred and ten percent a farce. Like this film is, which was also very famously known as French farce. Like the French did it first. It's like a fifteenth century, uh, form of like uh, entertainment that used elements of clowning, yeah, acrobatics, yeah, yeah. caricature, and it was almost like this, like again, Pink Panthery, but like an like, absurdist comedy absurdist slapsticky comedy yeah yeah. exaggerated extravagant ridiculous absurd yeah it became very popular like like almost like a like Frasier became very well known for being farcical where it's like i don't know if you've have you seen many fraser episodes back in the day Uh, unfortunately yes yeah so it's always like oh daphne's in the room with this thing and she can't let daphne know that niles is in the other room how old are you like why are you watching Right, like I know you. I were wasn't watching when- Frasier. It was on in the '90s. It was on the same time as Friends and Seinfeld. I don't think but, if I made those references, it would be. But I feel like Frasier was for an older crowd. Like you were not the prime demo of Frasier. <laughs> I didn't watch a lot of Frasier. Like I watched Fr- Friends or Seinfeld. But yes, definitely. Um Well, you just said yourself, you've seen a lot.
1: No, I said unfortunately, I've seen some Frasier. Oh, okay.
0: Frazier was uh, underrated, but I didn't like. I have not seen more than maybe I don't know. 20, maybe I would. Episodes. Maybe I would appreciate it more now that I'm a man. <laughs> but, well, the reboot just came back, so you can start there and work your way backwards. Yeah, one of our friends is in the reboot. Who? Kelsey Grammer? No,
1: Jess Salgaro. She came to um, the after party for Jasmine Mosafari's film at TIFF Motherland.
0: It's a name drop right there.
1: Yeah. Anyway, so she's she's in uh, in Fraser.
0: Does she play Niles?
1: She plays Eve. Ah, that's close enough. She was also in uh, the boys. Girl,
0: Niles. But yeah, just to finish that thought, it's clearly inspired by French farce, a farcical film. This guy loves clearly French cinema, French culture, and he was kind of bringing his version of that to the Iranian stage.
1: Yeah, and. Yeah, 100%. And, like, in the documentary, they talk about that, about how when he was in France and Belgium, he was he got really into that, um, like, French um, – what was it called? New Wave? French – no, 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 French – Niles? Stop talking. <laughs> French absurdist comedies. Right, yeah, yeah. And neorealist films. So he got mm-hmm. really into those. And so he brought um, his first film in Iran uh, south of the city was considered the first neorealist film uh, in Iranian cinema. And then later, House of the Hunchback is considered the first uh, absurdist comedy. And so he's mm-hmm. apparently considered the founding father of, uh, of the Iranian new wave movement. Because even when you watch this film, it's very much shot like it's shot like those film Farsi movies, like the way that it's yeah. filmed, like it doesn't quite have the same kind of cinematography that a movie like like The Cow does. and And people are still putting on a lot of those old timey voices. You know what I mean? Right, yeah, yeah. Which the English equivalent of it would be like when you watch movies and they're like, and then the man came around the corner and he went into the mm. shop. Like, those, like, fake voices that people put in movies. Like, Iranian cinema definitely had that, especially in the 50s and 60s. So this movie still has that, but but then there's a lot going on in the story. So it's this weird, like, transitionary film that uses some of the stylistic elements of film Farsi. But then it's also adopting a lot of these, like, French new wave um styles of storytelling yeah. which which was an interesting kind of stepping stone i found
0: yeah no it's cool he's bridging the gap between those two worlds it's i don't know i can't i can't get over the fact that it's just very different than a lot of the films mm-hmm. of that era like this came out around the same time as the cow and aesthetically you might just think these are a bunch of 60s era actors in a black and white film but they could mm-hmm. not be more different tonally mm
1: mm-hmm. what year did the cow come out
0: there was a podcast I listened to recently that did a good breakdown of
1: the Yeah, it's 69. Came out in 69. Yeah, 69 this, one, this is 65. Yeah, this was 65. Yeah. yeah. Have you looked at how many movies he's made? Like how many feature length films he's made? No. He only made
0: there's four. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, yeah. I knew of the three. I didn't know if there was much more than that.
1: Yeah, he only made four. Um, and there's a conscious reason for it, but we can talk about it when we get to behind. Okay, the great.
0: The one other thing that I wanted to mention was... Again, I referenced, when do you hear yoga referenced in films? Do you remember, so the old man whose daughter doesn't want to get married, he's the Mm -hmm. old man who thinks he sees a burglar, it's the dead body, he hits him over the head and thinks he's responsible for the cause of death, right? He's wearing a do-rag.
1: Wait, what? I did not pay attention to that.
0: For long stretches of the film, he's wearing a do-rag. And I literally had to stop the film... And like Google the history of do rags because it's not something that looks like a do rag. Or he's fully wearing uh, the do rags that are commonly known as an identity making fashion choice in Black culture.
1: Oh yeah, you're right.
0: Are you are you seeing the scene right now?
1: Yeah, yeah. I wonder is it is he like perming his hair?
0: I don't know what he's doing because he's bald <laughs> on top of everything. Isn't he mostly bald?
1: Yeah. I don't so, know. Like, maybe I, maybe he's got like a weird like. uh like, what's that called when you have, like, a lot of hair on the top of your head?
0: It doesn't even look like it because later he's not wearing it. He just looks like a bald guy. Oh, yeah, you're right. But, like, I looked on the Wikipedia page on the durags, and they go back as the 1930s. But, because at one point I was like, was it, like, something in the broader culture outside of black culture that wore It's No, but it's like, in the 1930s, during the Harlem Renaissance and Great Depression, the durag was used to maintain hairstyles. During the Black Pride movement of the 60s and 70s, rags became a fashion statement. In the '90s, do rags were further popularized by rappers like Jay Z, Nelly, and Fifty Cent.
1: So cool. Guaranteed, it's something else. Like it's there's got to be some some other reason for, for it. For sure, and I'm sure. But there was nothing about somebody it. is writing me yeah. a message in my DMs right now explaining to me what the cloth
0: on his head is. You okay? So you don't think? But it's not like. But that is the, a do rag. Though it might be also something else. But that is unmistakably I, a do rag. It's not
1: no i don't think so because it's i'm looking at it now and it's like it's pretty short too (laughs) i can see why you would be like like i would also probably describe it as a do rag but i i don't think that's actually a do rag
0: before we get into the uh specific sections i also want to say the greaser in the leather jacket who's the last guy that stumbles upon the body that kind of results in the final showdown because the host yeah 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 the hostess and her husband finally track down where the note is and the, the greaser has taken it so they're like Listen, we'll pay you money. We'll do a handoff. This list is very important to us. He's like, I want hundred thousand dollars. They do like a showdown and then they try to get the money. This greaser, you know, he's drunk leaving a bar. He finds he finds the dead body, and he takes the money from his wallet, and he goes back to the bar to pay his tab. Yeah. And you know what he left? You remember what he left as collateral?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He leaves his like. He leaves his helmet and his goggles and his gloves and he like Loves. leaves all this stuff. for And like a, like a a windshield mask thing that like goes yeah. over his
0: face. Like everything that on, he before, needs
1: for a motorcycle. But he doesn't. But, 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 but hold
0: on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. But the thing is, as they're doing this, the slow burn is there's two guys at the bar laughing at him. And they just keep laughing and mocking him. And you don't know why yet. You're like, okay, so are they laughing because he's drunk or he's paying his tab? Like, that seems pretty commonplace in a place like this anyways. And then he goes, they're laughing and he finally tells them, he puts his foot on their table. He goes, I bought the boots. I bought the pants. I bought the jacket. He's pointing to the leather jacket. I got the gloves and the goggles and he's like and one day i will get the motorcycle too yeah and then he like jumps on an invisible like non-existent motorcycle like a six-year-old and goes and he like rides out of the store on like a non-existent motorcycle but before,
1: before he rides out of it he just like sits there and he keeps like revving the engine of this fake thing just staring yeah. them down and then eventually like they child. Go, yeah they go from being like laughing at him to being like scared of him and then he like yeah he goes out and then he meets the girl and then he like snaps out of his motorcycle impression
0: yeah i mean it's such a funny like slow turn of events because this guy looks like a 50s sort of greaser like grease guy you know from like a uh, travolta from greece yeah and he seems so badass and menacing and then you're like oh this guy's just like a child <laughs> like he's yeah. just dreaming of one day owning a yeah, motorcycle yeah, yeah. and he doesn't even he's bought all the things for it except for the motorcycle yeah Oh man, that was good. I like that a lot. Shall we jump to behind the scenes and trivia? Sure. Um ba 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 ba. Is that your impression of the motorcycle? <laughs> yeah. The film script was based on a story from 1001 Nights, but arranged for modern city life in Tehran. This was Ghaffari's third film after Junubishar. Yeah. And uh, Arus Kudume. Yeah. Uh the sound the south the south of the city and which one is bride? Which one is bride? That's the Wikipedia translation. Where is the bride? Uh, Which one is the bride? Yeah. Who is the bride? uh, Who is the bride? Who is the bride? Yes. Which both don't have a good grossing.
1: Which one of person is bride?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Jalal Mouhaddam, another intellectual film director, and George Luchensky, an Iranian-Assyrian cinematographer, encouraged Khafari to make this film. Uh, And at first, the story was set in the medieval times As the ancient stories of 1001 Nights had occurred. However, the censorship office forced Claphari to turn the story of the film to a modern setting. I'm reading translation straight off the Wikipedia page. Yeah. And I kudos to whoever wrote this, but I'm also like reading it in subpar English because I'm reading it word for word. Yeah. Basically, yes, he wanted to make this film set in medieval times because that's where 1001 Knights is set, yeah. but the censorship office forced them to make it modern, which I don't know why. I don't. I can't find further information as to why, but that's a weird, specific ask that the censor off, I, censorship I office. I I suspect
1: does. because it was set during the time of an Islamic caliphate, mm-hmm. and uh, and there was a big push during the Pahlavi dynasty to secularize depictions of Iran as much as possible.
0: Well, because isn't One Thousand and One Nights also Arabic stories?
1: Not the original. The original is Persian. It like it is? Okay. yeah, so One Thousand and One Nights was originally taking Persian myths and Persian stories and like little fables and stuff. They they also took fables from some of the surrounding areas. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was like one or two Arab stories in there. But it was later mm. repackaged as uh, with with more Arabic parables put in, like mixed in. Yeah. And that's why later a lot of Europeans started calling it Arabian Nights. But the original version of... Yeah, that's why I thought... yeah, you no, know, the original version is called 1001 Nights. And it's a compilation of Iranian fables Um, where every night these, this woman... T- okay, so the, the premise of 1001 Nights is this prince marries a woman and after they're married he kills her and he does this like i think it's like on the on the anniversary of his wife's death or something Mm -hmm. someone can dm me and tell me why i'm wrong and like what the actual details are i haven't looked at the story since i was like a kid but then he meets this woman named shahzad and he marries her And on the night of the wedding, and she she gets warned that, hey, his whole thing is... she's Yeah, she's informed. Yeah, that, hey, he kills his wife, like, at the end of, like, the marriage. So before he can do it, she's like, I'm known as a storyteller, like, let me tell you a story. So she starts telling him a story, and the story becomes more and more intricate, and there's, like, these... Like the story just keeps going on and on, and then eventually she's like falls every she's asleep. like
0: every night I'm going to tell you one story. Essentially, yeah, though, but, isn't that, or? yeah,
1: but she never finishes the story. It always exactly, ends on yeah. a cliffhanger, and then the next yeah. night she has to finish that story, and then she it she finishes it in a way that it tees up another story, then tells the next story, and then ends it on a cliffhanger. So it's like HBO style storytelling in like medieval Iran.
0: Well they were like Damon Lindelof's Lost, where it's just like, What is the island? It's like you'll have to tune in next week. Yeah, we will yeah, definitely yeah. tell you. Yeah. And then they're like six seasons of Yeah. Just edging. Yeah.
1: So it's that's the like gist of it. There was a really good uh mini series that I think ABC did years back, um, that adapts it pretty well. But then they also like included a couple other things. a couple other stories in it. Mm -hmm. Different versions of it have had the story of the Hunchback. It's had the stories of, like, one version had Aladdin. One version had
0: Mm -hmm. Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. Bearing the lead is that the original, like, the most popular story to come out of this out of pop culture is Aladdin and and the Genie. Like, Aladdin's Wonderful Lamp is one of the stories, right?
1: And then there's, like, Sinbad and stuff. But I don't know which of these were in the original version and which ones were added later, to be honest.
0: Uh, I always thought Aladdin was one of the original ones. Um, so you can connect the line from this movie to Robin Williams.
1: Yeah. yeah. You
0: want, or Will Smith.
1: And, and each of these stories also like ties into multiple stories. Like th- that's why this film can, like constantly has like it's a game of hot potato with his body where it goes from like. The The party to the, the woods to the outside, like where the cops are to outside of the hairdresser's place and the hairdresser has this like smuggling thing. Then it like ends up on the roof of the p- other party. Then it ends up in the courtyard like that is done intentionally because each of those mini stories is essentially a night that Shahzad is telling the story to the king or to the prince.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Way to jump into deeper analysis without telling me. <laughs>
1: I can give you more BTS.
0: Yeah, yeah. Behind the scenes, you got any more?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Farrokh Rafari's first film showed the working class, and and the reason that he was he made it according to this documentary that I saw was because he was just really fascinated in in machinery and modernization, and he thought that it would it would make for a very cinematic backdrop in a film. Mm-hmm. But the Shah was concerned, or his office was concerned, that the Soviet Union would use this film as a propaganda tool to try to convince the working class to become more socialist and communist and overthrow the shop because it Mm -hmm. it focused on the working class. So he was forced to recut the film uh, into a different movie called Urban Rivalry. The original title was South of the City. So from South of the City, it was recut. Uh, It took like five years for him to recut it and then he re-released it. As uh, Urban Rivalry. He only completed four feature films. Mm -hmm. And the reason for it is that he helped found the National Iranian Film Society. Okay. Which I believe is the same thing as Kanon, which Mehtash was talking about when he was on the podcast. And when, when he did this, he actually devoted most of his time to helping to connect other Iranian filmmakers and other Iranian artists and writers and actors and musicians to help them make their own content and to build an Iranian film society where there wasn't one. Mm-hmm. Because as he was making his first couple movies, he realized how difficult it was. But having seen how film offices work in uh, in Europe, he he dedicated his life to trying to build an infrastructure for Iranian filmmakers in Iran. Yeah, that's why... After like he made a lot of people were surprised because this movie was actually very successful. Like a lot of people knew it and watched it. But then he basically stopped making movies after this. He made one, but but, but aside from this, he didn't. And it was because he dedicated his his life's work to connecting of other Iranian filmmakers and, and ensuring the success of other Iranian filmmakers.
0: Did, did he does it say anything whether or not he worked with um worked with Nami on these projects? I don't know. I don't know.
1: He was eventually exiled from Iran. Yeah, yeah. He was exiled oh. in uh, seventy nine. Oh. Or he moved. He moved to Paris, and then he was he was not allowed to come back. And he died in uh, two thousand six at the age of eighty four. He uh, he worked as a prominent film critic for a magazine
0: called Positif. I really like like I I kind of became enamored with him as both a character actor and a director. This yeah budget. me so too I really want i really want to know more about him he's super cool yeah he's very super cool and rad <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah
1: radical gnarly if i can get a hold of the programmers at moma i would love to do what they did where he they showed the the feature film followed by the short documentary about his life because i think more i think more people need to know about this guy i think especially iranian filmmakers i think it's important for us to know about his life and and what he dedicated to his time and efforts to, because it's a pretty big sacrifice to be like, you know what? I'm okay with um, essentially retiring from filmmaking and dedicating my time to developing other Iranian
0: filmmakers. Is the documentary you saw called Farouk's Time? I don't know. It seems to be a documentary from 2014 called Farouk's Time, dates back to the last days of a private life of Farouk Afari and his memory of filmmaking, critique, histori- historiography, and all this stuff.
1: Here, I can find it right now. Farah Rafari the Centenary. It was made in 2022 by Esan Khoshbach. Yeah, no, it was good. It was very good.
0: Let's go to Critical Reactions. I only have one, two small notes. Hit me. In 1964, the film was screened at Cannes, or Cannes, mm-hmm. and in 1965, it played at Locarno.
1: Oh, wow. Was it the first Iranian film to play at those festivals?
0: According to this, no. The first... Uh, Iranian film to play a Khan was Mustafa Far- Farzan is Cyrus the Great, which played in 1961. We just Googled that. <laughs> that wasn't off the dome. I'm not deceiving my listeners. Deeper analysis, uh, where we talk about our interpretation, the themes and subtexts of the film, and what's it all about. Faran, take it away.
1: What do you want me to say? Uh, what, what was the last thing that we were... We were saying something that you were like, save that for deeper
0: analysis. What was it? You said something about how... Each one of the houses represents one of the stories from A Thousand and One Nights. What? Each one of the stories, the neighborhoods, the hair salon, the party upstairs. Represents oh, kind of yes. Tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is your thought. Yeah,
1: to- yeah, yeah. So essentially, the I like calling it the, the hot potato story because they're just passing around this dead body. But uh, the way that it's written in A Thousand and One Nights is each little adventure that spawns from the movement of this body um, is a mini story within a thousand and one nights that make up the compilation of the story of the hunchback. So in this film, each time the body moves from one place to another, it's, it's an adaptation of that. The, the big difference. And I wonder why he did this is, you know, when they're like, Oh, we're going to take him to a doctor, but they're not able to make it. And the directions are wrong and they end up with a hairstylist. In the original text, they do get to a doctor.
0: Oh, okay, yeah.
1: But in this, it was changed to a hairstylist, and I don't know why. Right, yeah. But I thought it was funny, and it was definitely a change that it was. It was something that I wasn't expecting, especially because when you're like introduced to it, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you're seeing a dialogue scene between mannequins.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. My only like deep interpretation of it is that it's clearly you know doing its version of a French farce a uh, slaps the comedy in the vein of naked gun. And, uh, maybe, you know, you could probably extrapolate something about like how the director's kind of taking the themes of death and tragedy and playing it with severe lightness. Mm. He's defying or almost refusing to look at these themes in a dark and morose lens. Mm. You know, you'd think like, if someone's like, I got a film from you, a black and white film from the sixties from Iran. And it's like themes of death and themes of tragedy. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. what is this film? But this is such a lighthearted romp, you know, um, there's something to say that maybe this is just like a film that was this the intention is to like spit in the face of death and fear around death and just be like, let's just have fun with these subjects instead. Yeah, maybe.
1: I liked also that uh, it, it did adapt part of one thousand and one nights because we do have a history yeah. of storytelling in our culture. So to mm-hmm. me, it was really nice to see that reflected here. I would love to see more stories from A 1001 Nights and from Shahnameh be adapted into movies and into shows by Iranian filmmakers and whether that be set in medieval times or in ancient times or ad- or adapted to more modern settings there's just there's a gold mine of stories there that we can adapt and build on so uh, it, it, I've, I found it really interesting in a positive way that he adapted this story from A Thousand and One Nights and gave it, like you said, this like French farce twist, which I guess if if it's like an Iranian French farce, would we just call it a farce farce?
0: Farsi. A
1: farce farce?
0: Farsi farce or farce-y.
1: I think you could call farce. it a farce farce
0: because like... Farce, Parse farce.
1: Parse farce, yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> um, was there anything at the moment screening that was really like a sort of a preamble or like Q&A afterwards that, not Q&A obviously with the director, but like... Was there any sort of talk before and after the film?
1: I don't know if it was introduced because I I ran into a friend outside the theater as I was going in, so I actually got in like I missed the first two shots of the film. Yeah, um, so I missed the first ten seconds of the film. So I don't know if they they introduced it or not. Mm-hmm. But afterwards, instead of doing q and A, Q&A, they showed the uh, the the documentary about his life.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to best scene. Uh, yeah, I've been waiting. All episodes talk about this.
1: Okay. What's your favorite scene?
0: Hands down, my favorite scene. And every time you brought it up, I've stayed silent because I just want to gush about this now. When you first meet, the, his character's name is Manuch. too. It's not Manucher, It's Manuch. It's probably short. That's what it is in IMDb.
1: It's probably short for Manucher, I would guess. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe it's some other name that, again, people are going to yeah. DM you me never and know. be like...
0: No, it's a different name. Cover all your bases and all your grounds to make sure you're you're pre-responding to every comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This man was just played by the director himself, uh, Farouk Afari. And man, his introduction. It's like he's working, he's sweeping up the hair salon and his dialogue to himself and all the editing is cutting to the various mannequins in the play, in, in the store, as if these mannequins are speaking to one another. It's so good, so funny, and then they slowly reveal that it's a man muttering to himself about what was that noise outside, is it the people partying, and then you realize, he kind of explains out loud that he's excited to go on this trip, and he's going to go to Europe, airplane, Europe, airplane, he doesn't say Chamonix, he says Europe, airplane over and over again, he leans his head on the mannequin's face, I love everything about the scene, because then it cuts to the sound of the engine running, and the plane in the air. Yeah. Not to cut away that he's on the plane. It's just a picture of a plane he has in his back office. And the sound of the engine being him shaving his beard is such a good first 45 seconds to introduce a character. It's so well written. Yeah. yeah. Have a people? Honestly, like, I don't know. it's just like this I, I did not realize when I was watching the scene, especially the first time that this is the director. He's what a scene stealer, too. Like, I just really, really like this character and I really like the scene. And it's hands down my favorite scene in the entire film.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I I loved it. And I remember, like, because I got to watch it with an audience, right? Yeah. So when when that mannequin scene comes up, everybody was just like, at first, everyone's like quiet and like trying to figure it out. And then once it cuts to like the second mannequin and the third mannequin, people start like laughing more and more and more. And then when yeah. it when you get the reveal that like, oh, it's a guy who's tweaking these mannequins and whatever, it people yeah. started laughing even more.
0: Uh, what's your best scene? Is that your favorite scene?
1: No, my favorite scene is Okay, it's it's such a small scene. I love it for Yeah, again, it's like something that you would see in like Naked God or like Airplane or or um Pink Panther. Mm-hmm. But it's a scene where uh The, the motorcyclist Mm -hmm. who doesn't have a motorcycle, Mm -hmm. he like gets the papers and then the, the two shifty eyed guys like come chasing after him and he like runs up a wall and then he like books it through somebody's house, like someone's bedroom. And as he's running through the bedroom, yeah, he like. He, like, sees this old man. He, like, wakes him up and he's, like, call the cops. There's two people chasing me. And then he jumps out the window and he leaves. And then the guy (laughs) looks. And then the two guys come running in after him. And then they run out. And then he, like, turns over, pulls out the phone, which is, like, conveniently placed right beside his bed. Keep in (laughs) mind that, like, first of all, not everybody would have a phone in their house at this time in Iran. You would probably, like, go to a post office to make your call. But not only does he have a phone in his house, the phone is, like in his bed basically like turns over pulls out the phone calls the police and he's like oh there's a guy you're trying to steal and then he's like oh one second and then he takes his dentures and he puts them in and then they're like yeah, and then he's like oh yeah. there's a guy here who just got chased through <laughs> yeah. my house by two other people Hello
0: Hello Hello Hello
1: Hello 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 Do Hello 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 and I just thought it was so funny the like the visuals of like this guy running in waking up this old man, the phone right there, the two guys who chase after him yeah and then and then needing to stop to put the dentures in to do the call again I just yeah. I thought it was so funny
0: yeah, that's great i I also want to do the second runner up for best scene is when the cops arrive because they hear there's been commotion or something mm. and they enter the house because they're like they enter the house. They enter the hair salon mm-hmm. and at this point, um, Manuch and his boss are trying to figure out what to do with to dispose of the dead body, but the cops are here. So they put the corpse in a in one of the hair salon chairs and put one of those hair dryer machine things on top of his oh, head. Oh, yeah, yeah. They yeah. put a wig on him and they cover his face with, with like shaving makeup cream. Makeup and stuff, yeah, yeah. Makeup and shaving cream. And so like the cops are in the room with the dead body, and he's like, Oh, this is just our customer machine. He's like, Why is she still here? It's like, oh, because we're closed tomorrow and she needs a thing. That whole scene is so good. And they're
1: like flirting with her too.
0: Yeah. And then they're all
1: waiting outside for her to come out so that they can hit on her and try to pick her up. Yeah. And then when they're coming out, like where they disguise the body as a mannequin, they're like, what happened to that woman who was here? Like, oh, she left earlier. And they're like, what? No, we've been waiting here this whole time for her to come out, where is she? Yeah. And then they start dancing with the mannequins. Yeah,
0: Is it not the corpse? They're dancing with of, the corpse, Yeah, though? one of them is with the corpse yeah. and one's
1: with the other mannequin. And then they. Yeah. she's like, stop messing with my mannequins. Blah, 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 blah. What are you doing? These yeah. are expensive. Well, because
0: for context, too, they decide the best way to get rid of the corpse is to start pretending they're going to pack away the mannequins in the car in yeah. front of all these cops and onlookers. So they pack the first mannequin and the second. And the third corpse, they kind of cover head to toe in a blanket and a, th- a hat and all this stuff. Yeah. But then when they see this, they start thinking like, oh, let's just fool around with the mannequins and pick them up and dance with them or whatever. So he just picks up this corpse that's under a blanket. It's under this tarp. And he starts dancing with it and wanting to pretend to kiss it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, don't touch that mannequin. It's really delicate. Like, it's so farcical. Oh, man.
1: I'm going to throw in a a runner up for best scene is the scene with the... um. The motorcyclist, where he like, he runs over and he threatens the two guys who are sitting down, and then mm. he starts doing the 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 motorcycle noises and stuff. So yeah, good. that's really good. Least favorite scene? Um, I'm gonna pair this in with what didn't age well, but it's probably a little bit of that opening scene with the guy in blackface.
0: Oh right, yeah, yeah.
1: Because he's in blackface. Right,
0: yeah. I had just the old man, when you first kind of meet him, he's berating his daughter who's in tears because she doesn't want to marry the person she wants. She's essentially being forced to, she's getting ready for the next day that she's going to marry someone she doesn't want to marry. She loves someone else. And the parents are like, you're going to marry this guy. And she's like, I don't want to marry this guy. Not only is that scene just like, just a sudden moment of like, none of nothing but the scene is fun or funny. But also they have the most hideous wedding dress on her. Because they're, like, putting her own wedding dress on her and they're covering her in Christmas lights? Yeah. Like, all the decorations and stuff are, like, lights. And now I'm like, like, this is the ugliest thing you could possibly wear to your own wedding. And she's, like, sobbing. And they're like, more lights. Cover her in lights head to toe. like, why? This is hideous.
1: Yeah. the like, the weird lights sewn into the
0: dress. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like, flashing like a Christmas tree. Yeah. They've literally decorated her like a Christmas tree. You mean a Yalda tree? Yalda tree, yeah. Your favorite. Damn this poetry! We discussed our favorite quotes from the film. Uh, I'll go first, really quickly. This is just because it really sets the stage for how silly the film was gonna be. But when they first meet the old man, they ask for directions, and it's like, "There's a doctor around the corner." I once took my daughter there when she swallowed a gramophone needle, and I'm like, "Okay, great. Well, where's the directions?" He's like, "Well, it turned out that it wasn't that dangerous when she had swallowed the needle," and I'm like, "That's great, wonderful. How do we get there?" He goes. I guess nowadays he's like, you have to be more careful with those gramophone needles than you think. And they're trying to find the direction. And he goes, I guess nowadays people wouldn't be using a gramophone. It would be something more modern. And then he's just like, Where is the <laughs> yeah. doctor? And this guy's just going on a long-winded story about the gramophone needle. And then uh ama be hiç yeah like just such a funny line and it's the first like really hard laugh i have in the movie you know what that like so many other that that reminds me
1: it it reminds me of some of the bits that payam does payam banifast on his on his instagram where he's (laughs) like trying to tell his dad a story and then his dad's like he's like yeah and then we went to the the basketball court and then the dad's like yeah okay so there was this crow once that I saw, and the crow came, and he's like, "I was, yeah, yeah. What does this have to do with what I was saying? Yeah, like it yeah. It just reminds me of that. It was so
0: funny. Shout out, Payo. yeah, uh, comedic genius. That guy should be everywhere all the time, everywhere all at once. He was everything he was, everywhere. I know, I know, I know, I know. That's that's why I suddenly started that sentence and realized what I was doing. Oh my god, uh, he is in that film. He plays the he plays the everything bagel. Uh, okay, so. Uh, you, do you have a favorite, favorite, damn, that's poetry, favorite line. Yeah. Do you remember what I told you about it? You said that I wouldn't expect, suspect what it was. Yeah. Can you guess what it is is. now that I've told you, you won't be
1: able to, like, you wouldn't expect this to be my favorite quote. What do you think is, no, I don't know. I, 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 of of everything said in this movie, what do you think is the thing that I'm least likely to be like, that's my favorite quote?
0: I don't know. I can't remember. I don't know.
1: It's where he does the motorcycle noises. Yeah. That's like, that's my favorite quote.
0: Your favorite quote is the motorcycle noises.
1: <laughs> yeah, cause it, it. I was dying in the theater when that happened, and I just yeah, yeah. like that was the thing that probably like stood out to me the most as I went on, cause it was yeah. just so ridiculous. Cause this whole movie is like absurdist comedy. Yeah, yeah. And that one scene in particular is probably like the most absurd out of everything that happened, and I just thought it was. I thought it was hilarious.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. So your favorite quote in the movie is meh, 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 <laughs> Yeah, meh, I think I think he actually goes
1: "Wow." Yeah.
0: <laughs> wow. <whisper> <That's> your... <sharp inhale> Let's go to
1: favorite performance. Um for me it's it's Faroq. I thought he me
0: was Me too. Yeah, he's so good. He's really good and like, I don't even know. Like, do you, he's not the main character, right? Is he? No, he's oh. not. Who is? It's, but This is truly an ensemble story. Yeah. I. I the, the main character is the dead corpse. Right. The main character of your film is dead 10 minutes into the movie. Yeah. He's the titular character for sure. But yeah, he's so good. He's very charming, charismatic. He's got a Charlie Chaplin-esque kind of vibe to him. His whole look. Now that I think about it, he kind of does look like Peter Sellers too.
1: I mean, like a Peter um, Sellers. See his face. Young Peter Sellers. You know who he like? Lo- Maybe a little bit. You know who he looks like to me? He looks Who's like that? he looks like a cross between Dustin Hoffman and Stephen Colbert.
0: Oh yeah, I see that. Yeah. What a what a great performance! Yeah, he was fantastic. Nitpicks and hot takes. Nitpicks and hot takes.
1: I gave mine. My like main one was
0: okay. I will go with just a few like nitpick nitpicks different different than well wait unless you're what aged poorly. But though. we 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 merged that. Remember? Okay, so nitpicks, hot takes, and what aged poorly is yeah, all in yeah, one yeah. section. Yeah. I'll, okay. I'll I'll go mine then together. But I'll say my one nitpick about the film is someone needs to tell this director that a dead corpse cannot be made to stand upright because there's multiple times in this film where this the corpse just seems to be standing upright when the, the scene needs it to be. Yeah, yeah. For example, when they dress him up as a mannequin and he's kind of like, the guy picks him up to dance with him. I don't know if they claim to have, have him hooked on a thing, like a coat rack or something, but the way they're carrying him upright as a mannequin, it's just like, you can't carry a corpse that way. Yeah. It was clearly the actor kind of helping them shuffle to the car. Probably, yeah. But also the guy picks it up and assumes that it's um, a dead body, so he's like swinging it around. Unless. like a unless rigor mortis
1: no what if you know how like the mannequins are sometimes strapped to like a rod if they impaled the body from the butt to the head that's, with the so rod, that's a possibility Then i think it's possible
0: but his his
1: legs and his arms would still flail around
0: that and also later on at the garbage they kind of drop him off in the garbage dump which is in the back alley of the old man's house that's when the old man sees his like silhouette standing there yeah and assumes he's a burglar right yeah so he hits him over the back of the head He's just standing, like, leaning up. He's leaning up against the wall, but it's leaning up, like, the way someone would be standing. Yeah, 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 yeah. A corpse will not stand up right that way. So that's a nitpick. Unless it's rigor mortis, but I don't think rigor mortis sets in that quickly. No, no, no. I don't think so. What aged poorly? You said yours. I would say one of the things, there's a few moments, not too many, but there's a few moments, I don't love the shot choices, Mm. and I don't know if it's a, like, production of the time or whatever, but, like especially when they're moving the dead body disguised as a mannequin into the car and you kind of see a bunch of quick shots from inside the car. Mm. It's extreme close-up and you kind of can't... It's like extreme close-up to the point you can't even really tell what's going on. Mm. And there's a few moments like that that I was like... Yeah, that's fair. What is happening here?
1: There's, um, I think, also the old-timey voices. Yeah. That obviously doesn't age very well. I mean, it's a product of the times. You know who... There's one character that doesn't have that. Can you think of who it is? The host? No. The female host is? It's, it's Faroch. Oh. He's the only yeah. character that doesn't do that like fake old timey voice.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Well, does the host do it though?
1: I think so. The woman? I'm pretty sure. Yes, kind of. A little bit. Yeah, maybe a bit. The the cringiest one for me is the two performers who stuff the hunchback's face with food. Yeah. Those yeah. are the two sure. most over the top ones and the two that like yeah. I remember watching that scene and being like, oh, man, if this whole movie is about these two, like, this is going to be a rough time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And thankfully, they are only the first adventure with the corpse. And then they're off.
0: Double feature lineup. I can go first. Hit me. I actually was going to mention this off the top of the podcast when I was introducing the film. But it might as well be fine. This is essentially Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To the point where I'm wondering if Weekend at Bernie's saw this film and was inspired by it. Yeah. Because, A, it could work as a fun double feature lineup to watch this with Weekend at Bernie's and be like, oh, here's a Hollywood, Florida version of them doing that. But, B, also, I was going to just off the top be like, for those who haven't seen it and want a picture of what this is, this is a 1965 Iranian version of Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah. Because they're constantly finding really creative ways to hide the dead body, make it seem like he's alive, make it seem like a mannequin, moving from here. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's what this film is. If you're interested in watching and haven't seen it, and that, that corollary sparks some interest, 1965 Iranian Weekend at Bernie's. That would be my double feature. Top that.
1: <laughs> I don't think I can. I think that's got to be it.
0: Yeah, that's a fun... It's weekend film. at Bernie's. That's really good. Uh, can this be made into a modern Hollywood remake? I guess it already was. <laughs> weekend at Bernie's. Yeah. Uh, I would say not only can it be, because it has been, but I implore this to be, because I think... If Hollywood remade this in modern days, done in English, but by an Iranian director with an Iranian cast. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still make it set in the US or whatever. It can even be set in Iran, I guess. Yeah. But I'd love to see a modern remake of this done, like weekend at Bernie Style, but yeah. with an Iranian director, Iranian cast. Because Does the
1: Iranian director also play the hairstylist?
0: Totally. Nice. It'd be really it'd be really fun, and I think it could be um like, you know, now you'd have all the work of like David Zucker, the Naked Gun films, all yeah, those guys yeah. spoof movies. So like, yeah. that's your groundwork, too. All right, cool. Final thoughts and grades. This movie
1: really resonated with me and not for reasons that you might think. Like, it's not like it was deeply emotional and, and moving. Uh, it resonated with me because of what it was able to do differently. It, it kind of recognized what Iranian cinema was at the time, and it made a conscious decision to do something different and to take elements of film from other parts of the world and uh, and try to create something new while still infusing a lot of Iranian uh, history and sensibilities, whether that be that old, old-timey um, voice, which I would argue is actually pretty dated now, or even the use of... Uh, a thousand and one nights as the the main inspiration behind the plot mm-hmm. so uh yeah for me i would give this film an a
0: Ooh, that's pretty good yeah that's maybe not surprised. how many a's have you given so far
1: i have given two a's i gave an a to the deer and i gave an a plus to no bears
0: i see yeah nice
1: what did you think i would give it
0: i, w- I thought it was deserving of an a yeah, because I give it an A as well. Great. Right. I actually thought, but towards the end of this podcast, I figured you'd give it an A. But I would have thought you would have given a little bit more criticism towards the editing and stuff, like I did. Oh, just like those like close like shot. Like I just you thought you, you would have had it. more of those nit. No, no. I mean, even like I thought when I was expecting what you might say about this film, I thought you'd have a little bit more nitpicky thoughts about right, the way right. it was shot.
1: Sorry, I meant before we jumped on our call. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay.
0: But yeah, I really liked it. It's an A because I feel like it's it's actually stands out as kind of a film that isn't really hasn't been there's we we will have to do a deeper dive into better like more iranian films Mm -hmm. uh, more iranian comedies Mm -hmm. um like specifically like i'd love to do the landlord at some point i really love that movie but in terms of like it stapling its name to like the culture of iranian cinema this is truly a standout Mm -hmm. and sort of sad that it's not as well known because like you mentioned like a lot of iranian cinephiles you talked to hadn't heard of it Mm -hmm. it's kind of gone under the radar and. It's great that MoMA was doing a presentation of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for me, I would say, yeah, final thoughts on this is Night of the Hunchback. It's, what can you say? It's the weekend of Bernie's of its time. It's an Iranian tribute to French farce drama and an adaptation of classic Middle Eastern folklore and told through a slapstick lens with an absurdist, absurdist clown-like performance throughout. But more importantly, Faroch Ghaffari wants to laugh in the face of trauma.
1: <laughs>
0: it spits in the face of tragedy and is tickled by the thought of death.
1: Do you want me to make sound effects for those two?
0: Yes. Yeah. What, what was your sound effect for tickle? <laughs>
1: that's that's giggle, not tickle. And then you said you said uh, spit, which is just...
0: Yeah. To Mr. Farouk Gafari, Uh Genius comedic performance. Essentially one of the lead actors of the film. He very much deserves... to to have his film and legacy be viewed by modern Iranian cinephiles because this film is glowing. report and reviews and remarks from Farhan and I as we both give it an A. So, yeah, can't recommend it highly enough.
1: Yeah, yeah, very good film. Big fan. That's an A average from us overall.
0: Mm -hmm. This is probably, this episode is going to be our last film of the year. So, until then, this has been Cinema Rex Podcast. I am Kaveh. And I am Farhan. Beomi dididar. And Farhan, um, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays.
1: Happy Yalda to you and to all of our listeners. We are recording this on Shabba Yalda, and Kaveh continues to insist on saying Merry Christmas despite it being Yalda. You can uh, reach out to Kaveh in his DMs, they're always open for your criticisms.
0: It's beginning to look a lot like yeah, Christmas Yeah, Every day of the year and then we'll go to music. Music for Cinema Rex was written and performed by Sojera S.